We don't need that, to go down that route. I've been down that road with him before, and it's like uh, it's it's harder to get those numbers out of him than a, a bash bill out of Jimmy Russell. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome to episode 185 of Bourbon Pursuit. This one is named Famous Staves. Get it? Get it? Think about it. It's a pun. All right. Anyway, let's go ahead, talk about a little bit of the news and what's been going on. We have wrapped up our first two barrel picks of 2019. We did not one, but two barrels at Four Roses and another at Buffalo Trace. If you want to see the pictures as well as some of the stories that go along with it and how we even came away with two barrel picks... Go and check out our public blog posts over at patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. And as always, thanks again to our partner, Keg and Bottle, out of the San Diego and SoCal area for making this possible. Make sure you visit their site at keg, the letter N, bottle.com, and you can shop over 700 different whiskeys that can be shipped direct to your door. Buffalo Trace issued a press release stating more than 230,000 people visited in 2018. It's a 15% increase in visitation over 2017 and a 345% increase since 2010. And to be honest, I can totally believe it. We were there on Monday and saw about 10 tours in the matter of the three hours that we were there. In addition, you can tell things are getting pretty crazy when people are at Buffalo Trace at the opening of the day waiting for Blanton's to hit the shelf. We saw someone come out, restock restock the shelf, and our entire group looked at the people that were running over there like they were nuts. One of our members on the selection team even said, you know you might be a little too deep into bourbon when finding Blanton's on the shelves. Maybe it doesn't even excite you anymore. That's funny because it's true. For Patreon supporters, make sure you go and you purchase your Pursuit series. Episodes 3 through 7 are available for purchase, and you can go and you can check out the directions on how you access them through our Patreon post. And if you aren't a Patreon community member, all of the remaining bottles will be open to the public in the next week or two. So stay tuned to our social channels because there's going to be a handful that will make their way out. Now, today's episode, it's another Bourbon Pursuit exclusive. I remember when Ryan and I launched this podcast back in March of 2015, and we were trying to find interesting guests and topics. And we fired off an email to Independent Stave and we would do it maybe every six months. And we just wanted somebody to come on the show and talk about the Cooperage, talk about the, the science and everything behind it. And for years, we kept getting denial emails. But then one email from Fred to Brad, and then we're in like Flint. So Brad, who would actually rather be called just a barrel maker and not a CEO, rarely does any media coverage whatsoever. So we're ecstatic that we get to capture not only his family story, but how they actually take customer service at Independent Stave to the extreme and how they also continue to invest in research and development that pushes the bounds of today's bourbon. We had a chance to tour the facility. And if you're in the Loretto area, maybe visiting a place called Maker's Mark, put this as a stop. You can actually see how the barrels are made and see their entire process. They don't typically advertise their visitor center experience much, but now you know there is another place you can get more information and another aspect of bourbon production when you're making your pilgrimage to Kentucky. Now, if you're interested in learning more about our private label bourbon pursuit series, 
head on over to PursuitSpirits.com and see what they're all about. We're continually trying to bring more excellent barrel-proof bourbons and rice to the market, and you can get all the details on how they're shipped directly to your door on our website. Now with that, enjoy this week's episode. Here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. On a short family vacation, I stood in long lines, climbed stories of stairs with my little boy clinging to an inner tube. We dodged barefooted five-year-old sprinters chasing siblings and plunged into the cool depths of Great Wolf Lodge, an indoor water park near Cincinnati. It was child heaven. Ice cream, donuts, pizza, so many water slides, and an arcade fit for the SpongeBob lover, with just enough hoops and bowling to keep a dad happy. However, when it came time to dining, I was depressed. Oh, they had all the chicken nuggets and ketchup for the kids, and the food was okay. But the bar menu felt like one of those grungy pickled egg places. They had a couple beers and bourbons, not fully appreciating their proximity to the Commonwealth of Bourbon, a.k.a. Kentucky. In addition, the bar didn't seem to accommodate anything more than opening a beer. When my wife asked for a daiquiri, the server commented about the blender working, so they should be able to make one. Now, any cocktail lover knows that this is the telltale sign that the bar cannot make true craft cocktails. The daiquiri is the one classic everybody should be able to make. And hey, we're here for the kids, not the drinks. So I turned my inner critic voice off and ordered a yingling draft. It came, I sipped, I returned it, and quickly asked for a yingling from the bottle. The draft beer just tasted off, pulling out the temporarily furloughed inner critic. Now I was just looking for things to not like. You know how that is. And I didn't have to look far. My eyes scanned the menu and found a dessert that made me cringe and my neck veins bulge. In big, bold black print, they touted a warm, brown sugar bourbon brownie caramel with vanilla ice cream. It was called the Bourbon Trail Brownie. Bourbon Trail is a trademark owned by the Kentucky Distillers Association. And while I don't expect people to think of trademarks when creating menus, I do hope they at least carry a prominent amount of bourbons. I seethe with anger over this. How dare they use bourbon's brand equity when they just don't even care about bourbon? I wondered why this bothered me so badly. After all, the bourbon trail brownie was just a dessert menu item at a kid's theme park. And it hit me. When I see the word bourbon, I don't think of the luscious spirits. I think of my friends, Jimmy Russell, Fred No, Wes Henderson, Eric Brown, Greg Davis, Chris Morris, and the original duo of Bourbon Pursuit, among others. I think of you, the bourbon fan, and the 231,000 visitors Buffalo Trace had last year, and the 1.5 million on the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. And when you put it like that, a fellow can get downright protective. You might say, I consider bourbon a part of my family. And that's this week's Above the Char. Are you watching my Amazon Prime show, Bourbon Up? Oh, check it out on Amazon Prime. It's Bourbon Up. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com. 
and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Fred took a little bit of a road trip to Lebanon, Kentucky today to kind of figure out what's, you know, we, we try to get a, a lot of the facets of everything that goes into bourbon, right? We've, we've talked to distillers, we've talked to blenders, we've talked to finance folks, and now we're talking to the barrel makers. Absolutely. Cooperages are the most important aspect of the bourbon industry that uh, probably doesn't get enough attention. You know, the, the distillers always talk about how the, the barrel will, you know, basically create 50 to 75% of the flavor for every product, but who's making those barrels? You know, who's the people, who are the people behind the barrels? Yeah. Not only that is I think, you know, we, we got to have just a, a quick tour of this location and it's amazing because you, you think, well, isn't this just an industry that like, don't change it. Like everything's fine. Like you make a barrel, you smoke it, you get it out there, put some whiskey in it. And we got to go, we got to see like, there's all kinds of crazy experiments. They're doing things. They're slashing barrels up. They're they're toasting at different uh, different levels to bring different flavor characteristics out of it. I mean, it's amazing that there's still this much innovation that goes into it because at some degree, it doesn't matter what distillery you're talking to, everybody's trying to innovate. They're trying to do something different. Yeah, everybody wants to stand out. And one of the best ways to stand out in American whiskey is through the barrel. Uh, for a long time, people were just adding flavoring and saying they have a new flavored whiskey. Well, that market kind of went away. And the truer market, the more long-term, sustainable market of good quality whiskey, you know, stood out. And how do you get that good quality whiskey? Everybody asks. Well, it, in a lot of ways, it, the barrel is 50 to 75% of that mm -hmm. answer. Because you got to get those those caramels, those leathers, those, mm -hmm. those cocoa nibs or whatever you can find out of there that you, gotta, you love. You got to dip deep into the vanillin of that wood and <laughs> pull out the wood sugars. There's, there's the first good actual term that we got in the podcast today. <laughs> so let's go ahead and introduce our guest. So today we have Brad Boswell. Brad is the CEO and also the fourth generation Cooper, or he just likes to call himself a barrel maker at Independent Stave Company. So Brad, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. So before we kind of kick it off and talking about experiments, about the barrels and everything like that, talk about sort of 
growing up or like building this industry, kind of kind of talk about how you got introduced into it as well. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the business. I started, oh, I say I'm a 47-year veteran of the business. So all my life, I grew up in the business. Um, probably age nine was my first job working for my father, my grandfather, stacking staves in the stave yard. Well, we were kind of stacking staves. We were also making little, you know, um, forts out of our staves. And <laughs> and people probably had to pick up more than it was actually worth. But we um, we enjoyed um, stacking staves in the stave yard. You know, I remember cleaning the truck shop when I was a kid. And just, you know, from age nine on, I mean, I'd work like four hours a week when I was like nine, just show up for work once a week. Then like when I'm 10 or 11, it's like eight hours and 12 or 13, it's like 16 hours. And eventually by the time I went to college, I was working, you know, whether it was in maintenance or on the production lines, you know, 40 hours a week during the summers and just learning everything about the business from, you know, from the harvesting, harvesting of the trees all the way to the, you know, loading the trucks or visiting clients, you know, at distilleries. I was building forts with blankets on top of couches and you're sitting here doing a barrel staves. It, it just sounds way cooler than what I was doing. When you were eight or nine, did you have a feeling of your family's legacy in the cooperage industry? Well, I mean, you know, I'd always grown up around the, you know, like most family businesses around the dinner table, talking about barrels, talking about the business. So, I mean, yeah, it was, it was pretty much omnipresent in what we did around our house and uh, with my grandparents. And uh, so, yeah, I think I knew that, our family were barrel makers. There's no doubt about it. You know, that's what we did. It wasn't questionable. We, we made barrels and we loved doing it. I think it was great because growing up as a child, when I went to work or went to the cooperage or to the stave mill, it was usually a positive experience. You know, something we had fun doing and maybe we weren't working as efficient as we should have, but we were still working and having fun doing it. My, my dad loved work. So, you know, I think as I got older, I think it really made going to work not so burdensome, but, you know, just something that's kind of a pleasure to do or something I enjoyed because my earliest memories associated with work were really positive memories, if that makes sense. Wow. Yeah, it's a neat, neat, neat experience. At our house, we always talk about making barrels as kind of something that's always talked about with excitement. And not so much, you know, with any it's not type actually of, work at that point. No, we never talked about it. I never, yeah, we never talked about it like that. Now, <laughs> don't, don't be started because Jimmy Russell always said, I've never worked a day in my life. That's Guess right. it's always fun now. Yeah. Have you actually worked a day in your life? Like, oh, you there's feel been like- a few days I'd call work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's been a few days I'd call work. So the the kind of the history of, of barrels, you know, the in the 1800s, it was the forklift. It was what everybody used to transport things. The uh, we get in the early 1900s, we start seeing those go away a little bit. And in one of my books, I found uh, in my research for one of my books, I found a, a stockpile of of material from the cooperage lobbies, and they were basically trying to figure out ways to protect their interests. And one of them was to um, say, hey, why don't we lobby Congress a little bit to make, you know, uh, whiskey, bourbon to be always aged in uh, bourbon barrels or in, 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 in new charred oak. Did your family have anything to do with that? I didn't see any Boswells. Yeah, on the everybody thinks that's some type of um, law we helped get put into place. But I, that was a congressman in Arkansas I think that put that into place, which we were present in the Ozarks, but um, no, they, the Arcan- our friend in Arkansas did that in 1964, 
for? Is that right? Or? Well, no. So, it, well, the for to for make the, it actual to make a, a so regulation. In, it was in the 1930s that it actually got on the the federalized code. All right, but it was in 1964 that it became a you know solidified as and throughout the world because we became a unique product, in the United States, and it was kind of etched in stone at that. Well, point. it might have been my great grandfather T. W. Boswell. He was he started cutting staves in 1912 down in the Mark Twain National Forest, which is in kind of the Ozarks, southern Missouri. So maybe he had something to do with that. I think he had 24 little stave mills all around the country. I think all the way from Missouri to South Carolina, my dad said. So. I would love, like if you have any like old correspondence, I would love to see if we could find something cool, like a connection there. You know, because yeah. I mean, how cool would that be that your your lineage was actually what created, you know, solidified bourbon? Uh, or or you might not want to. It'd be like, that's like today's insider trading if you yeah. think about it. <laughs> now, we've always been in the barrel business. I mean, you know, it's, that's just what we've done. And you know, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and my dad, and myself, my, bro- my son, you know, is in the business, you know, working summers with his friends and learning the business from the ground up too. So I'd like, I hope there is a connection and I should look for that. That'd be cool. <laughs> the other thing about it though is, is even if it was just dumb luck that, they had to be new charred oak barrels. The thing is, is that what this whiskey does the first time it goes into a newly charred oak barrel is that it does get a lot more of those flavors than you would maybe get into the second, third, or fourth time, right? So I, I, even if it was part of the law, I still think that the product would be better oh, or yeah, different th- in different categories, even if it was never becoming a, if bourbon was never a thing, it was still whiskey, yeah. but you would say this is a first time oak yeah. used whiskey. And that was how they kind of referred to it in the 1800s. It was tradition, it ended up becoming tradition, um, you know, to use the new charred oak barrel, but people would try to imitate it in various ways. So it, the the law is, the uh, regulations are important because it keeps out, you know, the imitators. And at that time, there were a lot of barrel makers, you know, there were a ton of them and they started going out of business. How, how has your family been able to, you know, maintain business all these years because they went away largely? Yeah, in the they did. I mean, I think, you know, we just, our typical, you know, um, MO has just been to focus and just try to be the best in the world at one thing and not get too involved in other businesses or you know, we figure we're maybe just smart enough to be good at the barrel business and maybe not smart enough to do everything else. So we've just kind of bared down and focused on the barrel business. And, you know, my my grandfather did most mostly did that. My dad really focused on the barrel business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I've been fortunate with a more buoyant market probably, but we had some little side businesses that I remember I was I was put in charge of the business of um, day-to-day operations. And I think that we had those side businesses sold within three months because <laughs> I, was, I wasn't interested in all in it. I just wanted to, you know, focus on what I knew best. And that was What just, were those side businesses? Uh, they're related. I mean, we've had different things. Um, they're walnut bowls. It's crazy that, you know, my grandfather made some giftware because, you know, you had sawmills. Mm-hmm. He cut white oak. He'd also cut some walnut. And with that walnut, they'd make, you know, giftware and walnut bowls. And it was woodworking. Oh, okay. And then Wooden he actually, spoons, they, lots and, of spatulas. And he made furniture. He made a little bit of furniture and they retailed it. So, yeah. but, you know, for the past 20, 25 years, it's just been focused on oak, for wine and spirits, you know, that's, that's what we do. Was whiskey, oh, has whiskey always kind of been the hallmark for the company? Absolutely. I'd say Kentucky bourbon is kind of the foundation of the business. I mean, you know, my great-grandfather at the early, 
turn of the century, he was making a lot of staves, and those were for beer barrels, beer barrels, before the aluminum kegs. So, you know, being from Missouri and Anheuser-Busch, there was some some um, staves made for, for beer kegs. Uh, but then, you know, for the past 80 years, at least, you know, since Prohibition, it's been, you know, um, a lot of whiskey and then wine. Wine got more popular in the, you know, 90s and early 2000s up to, t- up to today. So I also want to talk about the gravity of how big the operation is. And, and you don't need to name names of who you supply, but it's it's pretty much like across the board, a lot of places, right? I mean, like, I think people need to understand that when you think of the Cooperage, um, there's only one other company out there that has their own. A lot of people got a source from you, you know, there's other competition out there, but by far you're, you're kind of at the top of the pyramid up here. Well, I mean, I think we're fortunate to have a lot of good customers and we, we do supply a lot of distilleries. I mean, a lot of the major distilleries we've been supplying, since I was, you know, since I was old enough to know we were, who they were. We've always supplied a lot of these bigger distilleries. Um, but it is interesting, you know, they don't all take the same barrels. You know, we make different barrels for different customers. So, yeah, while we supply a lot of the major players and a lot of, you know, even craft players, you'd be shocked today about how many different types of barrels we make, make bespoke, you know, bespoke barrels all the time. And that's kind of changed, actually, over the past 30 years. You know, 30 years ago, my grandfather, he made more of just a, like a, a container that met regulations, right? They had the regulations, mm-hmm. the 1964 Char New um, oak cask. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a white oak cask. But um, back, you know, 30, 40, 40 years ago, that was kind of what they did, or even 60 years ago. Um, but in the past 10, 20 years, all these casks are not just charred oak barrels. You know, they're made to certain specifications to give off certain organoleptic profiles for certain clients' style of whiskey. So, yeah, we supply a lot of people, a lot of the major players, but you'd be shocked about the, you know, the, the differences between um, barrel to barrel, what they, what they ask for. Has the waiting list uh, died down a little bit? Are you able to um, help everyone who comes to you? But I know that's a lot. But uh, Yeah, I mean, the, I really like in 2013, 14, 2014, Fred was kind of the, a bit of a barrel panic. And most of that was driven um, by just supply of raw materials. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got the raw materials under control. The industry does. So there's plenty of white oak staves that are being seasoned today to make the barrels. Never has been really like a barrel assembly or barrel making limitation. It's more been a raw material limitation. Is, is there been and, a and, limitation from the like people being able to harvest the trees, though? That's a great question. What happened was like when there was what we call the Great Barrel Panic of 13 or 14, that was because the Cooper's industry rebounded from the Great financial you know, great financial crisis faster than like the building trades did. So we needed wood. All the loggers were, you know, out of work or all the small sawmills had shut down because there was no demand for um, hardwoods because, you know, people stopped building houses, stopped sawing lumber. I mean, like 40% of the little sawmills went out of business. It's crazy. But all of a sudden now then the um, distillers are like, we need more barrels, more barrels. We see this, you know, great opportunity. And all the loggers, you know, have sold their equipment, you know, or working at the car factory or something like that. So to get those people back into the woods, back into cutting, took took time and also took, you know, the um, market for other hardwoods to kind of come back. Yeah. Because white oak's only about 10% of the um, eastern hardwood forest. And of that 10%, we're, we're only using about 2%. So, right, we're like, we're using less than 2% of what a, log, of what a logger's harvesting. 
So we kind of need those other markets to um, have some life to them. Yeah. And once those markets got life, you know, after we kind of got through that financial crisis, we rebounded, housing took back off. Then guess what? Then, you know, the stave logs started rolling again. And um, then supply caught with demand. So, and it still is today. It's caught up. Yeah, I mean, the supply and demand aspect has always been something that I find interesting because I think we had talked to somebody before and, and they're saying, well, the the cooperage industry doesn't really use that much when it comes to the wood. You know, there's, there's all this idea of, yeah, is there enough? Like, is there enough raw materials? And then on the other flip side, they're like, have you ever seen how much wood it takes to build a house? Yeah. Like that takes that uses a lot more of the lumber. Am I am I wrong in that? That's yeah. There's a, I mean, again, we're using like less than two percent of the hardwood that's being pulled out of the typical forest in the eastern half of the United States. It is amazing. Like when my grandfather made staves, you would literally take a wide oak log, right, and you would use saws that that were like three quarters of an inch thick. Cutting staves are like a little over an inch thick, so you'd almost have like. A, sta- a pile of sawdust, like in a pile of staves, about the same size, a lot of waste. And today, whenever we cut staves, we use blades that are 42 thousandths, 0.042 inches thick. So we have a tiny little pile of dust and a big pile of staves. So there's a lot better utilization um, of the resource today than there was, you know, 100 years ago. And, and, and today, you know, people are using alternative building materials, you know. Mm-hmm. So... There's, a, there's probably overall less pressure on the forest. You know, there is less pressure than there was even 100 years ago just because of utilization, technology, alternative building materials. And also, if you think about it, there used to be forest fires in the eastern half of the United States. You know, today, there's very good control over forest fires. They're, they're on the other half of the United right, States. Right, no, they're on the dry half, <laughs> yeah, which is horrible, and they're catastrophic, and it's sad. But on the eastern part of the United States, you know, you don't have these big 100,000 raging you know, fires. Yeah, absolutely. So there's so the resources all overall. The resource is pretty healthy, and stress is relatively low. So I know there are people out there in construction that are probably going to wonder. So you you talk about that that blade. What's the life of that blade when you're you're running through here? I mean, are you replacing them like two a day, or do they actually last for like a year? Oh, you can resharpen them and resharpen them and resharpen them. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, if you have the right quality of steel, they can last a year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're getting a lot of use out of them. Yeah, no, it's. Absolutely. So the other question I kind of want to rewind a little bit back, uh, you know, you're talking about bringing on customers and figuring out their flavor profile. What do they want to find? Like what level of char? I want to talk about what does that process look like? So we'll take a, a page out of Fred's book and we want to come out with the old Ascot brand. It's a good mm-hmm. brand, by the way. It, a lot of mm-hmm. lot of le- legacy behind it. Yeah, four, $4,000 a bottle too. But anyway, five. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but what does that look like if, if you meet with us as potential new clients? Where do we start? Well, we start by getting our vocabulary um, the same. Because what you call sweet or what you call coconut or what you call, you know. Oh, you're totally screwed if you have Fred then because he's going to he's gonna bring out all the depth of flavors that right. he's got Right, which going is on. great. But we have to kind of narrow down to make sure we're talking the same language. Because if you're calling something, you know, sweet and I'm saying that's vanillin or vanilla-like, then, you know, it makes a difference to how we approach making the barrels. So, um, so we first of all, we get the language. So we have like kits like this. is kind of like a kit here where we have like samples, you know, of smoke. Or a sample here of, you know, sweet or like, you know, va- vanilla or estuary, mm-hmm. you know. And so we make sure we understand what we smell and what we taste and that we're talking about the same thing. Then we just start narrowing down what your preference is, you know, how much smoke do you want? How much van- vanilla character do you want? How much toastiness do you want? You know, do you want to remain estuary and fruity or do you want to be kind of 
fatter and more chocolate mocha or, you know. And so then once we start talking that language, then we, um, we'll start making samples, whether sample barrels or sample pieces of wood that are toasted and charred um, to, the, to what we think will work. And we start tasting and we start trialing. And then we kind of, you know, start here and kind of narrow down until we get the profile exactly you want. That you that you desire, whether so it's like, for your existing you know products or for a, a new product or a new mm-hmm. LTO or whatever. And yeah, because I think the question is is how long does that that process take to say well we got to wait and age it and figure it out, or do people just come in here and they're like Brad, we just love to buy a bunch of number four char and uh, we'll see you later. Yeah, well I think it's changing. I think that a lot of times people used to be driven by marketing stories and then, you know, they just kind of try to find the juice to work. But today they're trying to make really good juice, really good bourbon. And so we're starting more on the front end of the process more than ever with making quality, you know, barrels for quality liquid. And then they come with marketing story to kind of match that later. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. It's kind of evolved. It has evolved. One of, Kenny, one of the greatest, um, to me, one of the greatest stories and what I would say Cooperage history would be the creation of Makers 46. And, um, you know, that was a big part of my profile of Bill Samuels Jr. and and, um, and Bourbon Plus. And it was also, um, it's been a bit, I've written about that a lot, but since we have Brad, I just want to get, tell us the story of how Makers 46 came about, what your role was in it, and uh what that was like for you. Yeah, that was a great experience for me. Um, you know, it was Bill um, Samuels Jr. and Kevin Smith, you know, um, asked me to come talk to them about, you know, um, the possibility of making what is now Makers 46. And um, we kept, we had different languages, you know, about what we wanted and we didn't really mesh. So I had um, Dr. Jim Swan, if you knew Jim Swan, may rest in peace, but phenomenal, um, um guy in Scotland who had a lot to do with the whiskey industry and really, um, you know, scientist and sensory guy. Anyway, he came to um, Loretta and met with me and Bill and um, Kevin, and we got our vocabulary aligned. And if you can imagine Bill Samuels Jr. sitting in a chair listening to people try to, you know, to teach him vocabulary. <laughs> Bananas Foster. <in> <laughs> but but he did. He, he sat down a bit for eight hours the first day or whatever, and we went and talked about, you know, to make sure we're all – um, know what know what we're shooting for, that we understand the target, and that we're talking the same language, and that's how we started. And we did that for like literally. It's pretty incredible to have the CEO of this you know great brand and basically in the classroom with us, learning about you know make sure the language was the same. So basically, we um, learned the language of each other. Um, then we um, then we started talking about different experiments and did a lot of different experiments. I mean, big barrels, little barrels, staves, chips. I mean, all types of crazy stuff trying to figure out where, where we want, you know, what would get us to the to the target. And after like 120 experiments and after probably 3,000 phone calls with Bill all the way from his house to the cemetery between his house and Maker's Market, he pulled over and called me because he had good signal, you know, and, and lots of trials. And we'd do blind tastings over the phone, like blind tastings. So we'd send samples to mm-hmm. different locations with different number, letters on them and start tasting through them. Until, you know, after like 18 months of that, we came up with um, what we all agreed, met this profile, which Bill had set out like really early in the process. So, you know, Bill always said, let's keep the geniuses out of this. Let's just do it. And um, kind of like a little skunk's work project. Mm-hmm. And he did. And it was all it was all about making things yummy. 
And day one, Bill's like, let's make it yummy. And we had to define yummy. <laughs> he, does, he does say that. He does. He's, yeah, he, that's really what he said. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's exactly how it went. And um, then we all, when we all hit yummy, and which was well-defined, um, then we're like, wow, this is great. And then, and then the challenges went on because then it was like the wrong time of year to season the barrels. And so we learned more after that. But that was like, it was a pretty long process, a very, very extensive process, probably a little more technical than people might think, you know, is... It wasn't an accident. I mean, took and, a lot of stick to this. And I'll say too which Bill that has. <laughs> I'll say too that while that was a creation of a product, uh, in my opinion, that was also kind of like a, a launch for you and Independence Day because that brought your company to the forefront and introduced uh, you know regular everyday Joes to Independence Day. Did you see it? Was that a, a groundbreaking moment for the company to? to be so connected to a mainstream product like that. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com bourbon. And I'll say too Which that Bill has. <laughs> I'll say too that while that was a creation of a product, uh, in my opinion, that was also kind of like a, a launch for you and Independence Day because that brought your company to the forefront and introduced uh, you know regular everyday Joes to Independence Day. Did you see it? Was that a, a groundbreaking moment for the company to to be so connected? to a mainstream product like that? Yes, it was. It was, absolutely. I'm, you know, forever um, grateful for the experience and um, Bill including me in the, on the, de- you know, makers including me on the development also, you know, got a chance to talk about and just learn about the industry through Bill and through all the time I spent with him. It was incredible. You know, what was great was, you know, we have a side of our business which is wine related. So we make wine barrels. We do oak for wine also. And um, there we, we, so we learned a lot about, you know, there's six, you know, there's some, there's like 600,000 vintners in Italy and they all want something different. 
you know, and so, you know, so over the years, we've learned a lot about how to create different types of barrels in the wine industry. And it was great to bring that knowledge and some of that um, experience we had into the bourbon industry. And for sure, you know, um, Bill is right at the forefront of that and gave us a chance to kind of leverage our expertise into what's, you know, our core, into what's a, the foundation of our company. So it was a great opportunity. And and today, you know, I mean, people, it seems like are talking a lot more about flavors. You talked about flavored whiskey earlier and, you know, and I think it's been great for the industry. You know, I've heard people call it different things, you know, call it kind of a bonus or a gift and short term or whatever. But I do think like with the Makers 46, as we've gotten better at making different barrel profiles, you know, barrels have different organoleptic characters, you know, we can add kind of these, like these different flavor characters, which are very natural, you know, and very integrated. Absolutely. Versus, you know, versus like when you're adding some flavorants, they don't, they're a little disjointed. But whenever you have a barrel that's made to a different standard, you know, to, to taste differently, and the liquid's been there for five, six summers and winters and hot and cold, it's very integrated and round. And, and it's a great way, I think, to create differences that are significant, but also very integrated and very natural. And That's and a hallelujah them. moment right there. Mm-hmm. You know, basically. Yeah. The barrel versus the artificial flavoring. And don't you think time, the time and the temperature and all yeah. those reactions that take place over year after year, it gets mellow and comes together. Kind of like a casserole. It, absolutely. <laughs> you look like you're cooking for a question there, my friend. You said casserole, and I'm yeah. like, oh, man, that sounds doesn't sound too bad right now. So I kind of want to also shift to maybe have like a, an education little segment here. Yeah. Because there's a lot of people that listen to this and— they can look at bourbon on the shelves and they like the bar, they like the bourbon, they like what it is, yet they probably don't know the process in itself of what it, it even goes through from beginning to end. And I don't want to take up too much of time, but you know, kind of talk about the time and process that it takes from actually getting the raw materials to slicing it up to uh, seasoning it to the mm-hmm. point where you're actually building the barrel, charring it, and then setting it on its way. Absolutely. So the the tree starts off as an acorn, and then about 100 <laughs> years later, we have a tree that we harvest. And then after we cut that tree into small staves, the pieces that make the barrel, so say there's 30 or so staves around the barrel, and seven or eight pieces in each end of the barrel, um, those staves will season. After we cut the log into staves, those staves will season from six months to three years. Um, sometimes more, but typically three years or less. Now, talk about the reasoning why six months, three years, year yeah, absolutely. Is, I mean, is there, is there a science? Can you are you to the point where you can look at it? And you can be like, that's it, that's ready. You're, yeah, I mean, we let the wood season on the yard, let Mother Nature work on the wood, like the elements. So it's leaching of tannins because tannins, which are the bitter tannins, which keep bugs from just destroying a tree or a piece of wood, those bitter tannins will leach out over time with water. Also, there will be um, microbial active like mushrooms grow on the wood, and they'll put their tentacles down, they'll feed off the wood and break it down and make it more flavorsome. So that's a good thing. It's a great thing. Yeah, I whenever, actually, whenever, actually didn't know that. Yeah, people talk about killing dried wood like it's evil. All Killing dried wood stops that kind of degradation process. That's all it really does. So a lot of times you want to keep that degradation process going on and on and on and let Mother Nature do it rather than trying to just use fire to do it. Because mm-hmm. fire degrades it also, right? But it's, it's more extreme. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, so we, we we season the wood, create you know, um, let the let the micro the mushrooms grow on it, break the wood down, make it flavorsome. Some bird shit probably. Yeah, well, yeah, but we 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 clean up we we, <laughs> we clean the wood off very good before we use it, and and um, so then after after it seasons, then we take it in the coopers, you know, and we'll toast the wood for you know sometimes up to an hour, 
and sometimes very little toasting, depends on the flavor you're seeking. And then we'll chart, usually for you know around a minute, um, less. If it's really old seasoned wood, you might just flash chart. You know, if you want to use different flavor profiles, you might chart for a real long time. And then um, within an hour, we can test it and ship it. Mm-hmm. After that, you know, it's interesting when we talk about making barrels, and um, you know, a lot of times it's like kind of making uh, it's like mushrooms around campfire. <laughs> Marshmallows. Yeah, Excuse me. Can you, you hope you edit this. You know what? Yeah. I actually wouldn't mind like <laughs> campfire mushrooms, <laughs> some some, cor- some nice portobellos to that go to. Sounds good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's kind of it's kind of like marshmallows around campfire. So you know, you put them on your stick, and some people like you like real slow and slow toasting. Other times you like to just char it. Yeah. You yeah. know, and you'd be shocked at how people just like it charred. And then a lot of people like it kind of just where it falls off the stick, you know, and it's just toasted, not charred at all. And other people like it kind of like, you know, toasted for a little bit and then charred real fast, blow it out and enjoy it. And making barrels, not not that simple, but it gives you an idea about how we actually do like cook the barrels. It's a pretty good analogy. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah. I was going to get into, um, you know, the different types of oak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now you are playing with a lot of different oak. Give us a give us kind of like a flavor and scientific look at the differences between like American oak, French oak, Japanese oak, you know, just the various oaks that you're playing with right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so American oak is the most common oak used for um, whiskeys and bourbon. I mean, it's almost all American oak or is. And, you know, with American oak, what comes to the forefront is more the um, vanilla creamy character, some of the whiskey lactones, which people associate with like coconut. Sometimes we'll talk about lactones being kind of like a copper tan lotion character, kind of coconut character. And um, you get a lot of that with French oak, but you also get more tans with French oak. You know, it has much higher natural tannin content with French oak and you lose the lactones. So those lactones sometimes add kind of like like a creamy layer, kind of a nutty creamy layer to the... um, to the wood that you don't get so much with French oak, but you still get nice, sweet balance from the French oak as well, um, kind of spiced up a bit with um, with the tannins. You know, you can get a little more cinnamon brown spices with the French oak and a little more of the creamy, nutty um, balance with the um, American oak. How long? And then the, then the other oaks are more a little more slanted towards the French oak side of the equation. American oak is kind of the outlier when it comes to the lactones. How long were these experiments going on that you you figured this out, or like when did you do it? Was this was this something that your dad figured out, or is this something that you've kind of brought into the fold to figure it out? No, I well? think my dad really started it. I mean, my grandfather again. I mean, he was a wonderful business person. He made great barrels, but you know, um, back sixty years ago, seventy years ago, you know, bourbon was more a little more of a commodity. And then my dad recognized that it was going to be, you know, people were not just going to call for bourbon and soda, but they were going to call by brand, by maybe sometimes by warehouse or by, you know, all these different um, unique uh, offerings you could have in bourbon. And so he started, you know, really learning about um, oak and that applied to the wine business big time where he learned more about what makes you know, what species taste good with what type of wine or with what type of spirit and how long we should age the wood and how that affects the 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 whiskey or how, or how we should toast or chart and how that affects it. So my grand, my father really started it and we've just kind of built upon it. So, you know, we have full-time, we have full-time food scientists in our company and chemists and research people that are focused on wine or spirits. I mean, it's- Food scientists, that's what we missed yeah, out on. We have a good food scientist, Dr. David Yodra, yeah. Awesome. I think we're pretty close though. Yeah, I mean, I made ribs last night. <laughs> I drank bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> I 
that's food science. <laughs> so another question about just the customer aspect as well, you know, because you've got you got a Cooper Cheer in Kentucky, you've also got one in Missouri. Mm-hmm. And what, what cities are those in again? Lebanon. So get, saves on po- saves on postage. Are, are, <laughs> <I'm not thinking. laughs> are, are you uh-huh. only you know setting up Cooperages in towns called Lebanon? <laughs> yeah, and well, we have a stave mill in Salem, Missouri, and one in Salem, Indiana, too. So how about that? So he's branching out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Salem's and Lebanon's. But for anybody that you you go out, you go to a rick house, it's pretty easy to define these because you look at the barrel rings and they're going to have uh, either a KY in the studs. It'll have an MO in it. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have customers that say, I only want ones that say KY or I only want ones that say MO? Or are they just like... Brad, we got a shortage. I don't give a shit. Just send me some barrels. No, no. I mean, there's certain um, things we can do in Missouri or Kentucky that are somewhat unique. There's we can make like we can make certain um, types of barrels at each cooperage. You know, the exact same. You know, line them up side by side. Every aspect is, you know, the flavor, structural integrity is the same. But there's some things we can do in Kentucky and some things we can do in Missouri that are unique to each cooperage. So people will um, take advantage of those. And so sometimes they'll order a barrel that we can't make in Kentucky, a special barrel. Or they might order a special barrel we make um, in Missouri that we can't, you know, buy or, or vice versa. So, yeah, the, the Cooperages have some unique capabilities. But now then, of course, you know, they have, they can also have the ability to make, you know, the barrels that have the same characteristics. Now, you know the next question we're going to ask, right? Sure. Well, what's what can one do versus the other can't? Yeah, and that's a great question. So the Cooperage, <laughs> you know, it's great. I mean, Fred's been with me to the Cooperage in Missouri, and it's kind of like, you know, the Disney World of Oak. I mean, you know, we make all kinds of barrels for bourbons and wines and tequilas and rums and pisco and shochu and all these different types of barrels. And so it's a very complex, um, you know, offering of barrels there where in Kentucky, you know, we make more like 10 or 12 types of barrels primarily. It feels, um, it's very highly technical, technological too, but it's, it's technological in a way that you don't think of modern technology. And there's all of these pieces of equipment that are designed to, to make a, uh, a barrel get together like a quarter of an inch or, you know, a millimeter of an inch or something like that closer together. It's it's fascinating. It's a really fascinating journey. And the coolest part is, is you have to wear headphones and he talks into like uh, a mic that mm-hmm. you hear all through. So it's kind of like, um, being you know, a Brad. Being a tourist overseas when you got to join the group. And well, then. no, far more advanced. It's like, it, it's like, uh, you know, backstage level. Uh, headphones, so it's kind of like Brad's got his own little walking podcast with you. There you so, go. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's um, you need to come back. I do. I Bring do. Kenny with you. Yeah, I'll I'll come. I'll check it out. But another question about that. So I work in in tech, and you've got this idea of of manufacturing and having a a process that you know is repeatable, that you know is able, that you can basically streamline a lot. However, it seems like you guys are really focused on innovation. So why even go towards innovation and not just saying like, listen, like here's four buckets, choose one of these buckets because that's all you're getting. We're not going out of our way to do anything else. Like what? why even keep going down the innovation route? Yeah, that's a great question. I remember I was with a client one time and he had this um, – Offering and it was like a twelve thousand case offering, and he worked with a capsule company to have a certain shade of yellow on his capsule. I'm like, okay, we can for the we we can make bespoke barrels for that program just as well. Trust me, you know we're not going to just say here's what we hope, here's what we have. We hope you like it. Mm-hmm. That's not our philosophy. So instead instead of saying here's what we have, we hope you like it. We always say what do you want, what do you need, and then we'll make it for you. And you know so. 
again, I mean, 20, well, say 30 years ago, the barrels were kind of like made, put in a warehouse, and we draw out, you know, and people want, you know, 1,000 barrels, here's your barrels. Today, the barrels are pretty much all made to order because of that, because, you know, we don't try just to say, here's what we have, we hope you like it. We try to say, what do you need, what do you want, and then we'll make that for you. Wow. What's your target? Mm-hmm. And what's your objective? We'll help you meet that objective. What are the core states? I know we said the eastern uh, United States, but it's typically the Ozarks. Are there any other core states you're harvesting from right now? Yeah, our two largest are the, you know Missouri and Kentucky. Okay. But also there's there's good oak like around Ohio. Southern we have a mill in southern Indiana, you know, um western Tennessee. We get a lot of good good oak. So yeah, but Missouri and Kentucky are the two largest. So for us. Kenny, I actually used to work in the forestry industry, the forestry mm-hmm. industry before uh, I got into bourbon, and uh, I learned something new about you every day. That was that they used to they used to call me Forestry Fred. <laughs> I used to, it was I used to write tech stories on um, on it was in the pine industry, but I still follow forestry. It's like one of my hobbies. And Oregon oak and uh, and Garyana oak mm-hmm. is got like it's kind of like a controversial thing going on with it, like in terms of what they call it. And on the West Coast, they're very, the West Coast foresters are very particular about that. What, explain to the audience what Oregon oak is or Garyana oak is mm-hmm. and like how it's being applied in, in in whiskey today. Yeah, I mean, we don't do a lot with Gary oak or Quickest Garyana. You know, my grandfather, I think in the 1970s, really studied that a lot. And we've made barrels with it. I mean, it's. I don't think it's like a mainstream oak that you're going to use for all your programs. I mean, I think that its attributes are unique and creates a point of difference, and I think that works great for the people that use it, you know. And that, um, but generally, we've just not gotten real involved in it. It's just commercially available. It's just not. It's, it's a much smaller amount of it that's out in Oregon. That's you know yeah. commercially available. But it's also is it is it sexy though? I don't feel like it. it it's like a, it's a little. Excuse a little bit like French oak. But it's just, uh, to me, the whiskey is not, the whiskey that's coming from, it's just not doing it for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, you know. He's not going to comment I'm not going to comment I'm not I've, got, I've, got, I've, got, I've got good clients. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, not trying for that. But yeah. uh, but it definitely has different flavor profiles. Some people yeah. say a little more tannic, you know, than say what a normal American oak would have. Quercus alba. So mm-hmm. get, Which get is what we little sciency there. I, I like that. I like that. <laughs> but you know, you said the word sexy, and whenever you see somebody that says like, "Oh, this is aged in French oak," you're like, "Oh, yeah, oh, it's that it's is French. True. It's French. It's got to be. Yeah, it's got to be better." But I think that's kind of like a misconception. It seems like, and depending on what the flavor profile you're trying to mm. gain out of it, right? But that's is, right. is there? I'm assuming that just American white is a good good chunk of of what you are pumping out here. Yeah, the vast majority of. I mean, it's just you know. Not to get too technical, but there's like seven species of white oak and Quercus alba, Quercus alba. Let's get, let's get technical. All right. Well, the Quercus alba is what we really do use. There's like chinkapin oak or there's um, chestnut, you know, white oak or there's, um, you know, um, post oak. And there's a bunch of different species, but we try to stick with just just pure um, white oak for a lot of reasons. It's not just flavor, but also for structural integrity. So. Now, do you also have like? But we, but we do have. We have a mill in France, um, in northeast France, in the Vosges Forest, and you know we're sourcing French oak every day, and we and we still source wood from um, Slovakia also for certain programs. You know, we have customers that want European oak, so I mean, it's not just American oak. Real cool. Yeah, and we and sometimes sometimes we keep our oak separate from you know Appalachia to the Ozarks, and we'll you know create separate lots and make barrels from only you know um, one Appalachian and. 
stuff like that. So I mean, even though yeah, it's, it's American oak is our or is our kind of our mainstay. But I mean, yeah, we source oak from Eastern Europe. We have our own mill in France, and then we'll keep our lots within America separate at times to create you know different points of difference. What's the wackiest spot you've gotten a oak tree from? Hmm. China, that's pretty hard to get oak from from. It's hard, yeah, to, like from Siberia. Yeah, it's, it's hard tough. to mail something to China. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, China. you can't get it. Yeah, China. you know, um, we've done some. You know, we've sourced some crazy um, oak over the years from all different countries, and people have asked us to make barrels of oak from different origins, which you couldn't imagine, just because you know they're just trying to make themselves different. Also, mm-hmm. so now one thing that we made, we made barrels and we tasted probably. A hundred different species of wood over the years. It's uh, someone's got to do it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, what are the things that has changed for you in the last ten years? Has been tourism. Mm-hmm. You've really pressed, um, you know, educating, you know, the consumer populace, you know, through tourism. What is, what has that been like, and what is the future for Independence Dave in ter- from the tourist side? Um, great question. I mean, you know, for us, we're just B2B. So we're just, you know, my customers are distilleries and wineries and that's it. So we're not really trying to bring tourism to the Cooperages or to our sites for commercial value, direct commercial value. But we do feel like whenever we bring our clients, clients, which are the consumers, so when we bring bourbon drinkers to the Kentucky Cooperage, to our Kentucky Cooperage, that that experience they'll never forget and when they go to a bar or when they go to the store to buy a, a bottle of something, we think that that's going to help sway their decision to buy bourbon instead. Because I remember their um, experience at Kentucky Cooperage. I mean, you know, I think, you know, we used to, we, we still have like photo opportunities here, like with barrels or fire. And I think when that goes on your bar at home and you're going back behind the bar to get a, a bottle for your friends and you see that picture, you might reach for the bottle of bourbon rather than the bottle of vodka or gin. Yeah. And I hope you do, right? I mean, that's, that's my family's business. I mean, <laughs> and so I think it makes a difference over time. I think, you know, thousands of people per year times, you know, 10 or 20 years times all their friends and people start talking about bourbon. You know, we help we help add to that conversation for the consumer. That's what we're trying to do. So really, it's just trying to help our customers sell more bourbon and reach more consumers. And hopefully, you know, um, we also benefit by being able to, you know, grow our business. Absolutely. Awesome. So the other thing to, you know, we had talked about the process um, and just the generic side of it, but we've talked a lot about the innovations. Talk about some of the experiments that you have done that have been successful. We, we touched on makers for one, uh, but what are some other ones? You know, everybody's kind of familiar with chars one through four, mm-hmm. uh, but kind of go a little bit deeper. What are other things that, that you guys are experimenting with or playing with? Yeah, I, mean, I think we've been very... Um you know, we, you ask about Missouri versus Kentucky or Cooperage in Missouri versus Kentucky. Well, Missouri, we have a, which Fred's seen, we have a big area where we toast barrels and every barrel is like hooked up to a computer and we're measuring the time and the temperature of that barrel, we're measuring the temperature of that barrel against time all the time throughout the process and creating these very unique um, flavor profiles by controlling temperature over time. And, you know, we can't, toast enough barrels like that. If you talk about, well, is there limitations or is there a waiting list for barrels? For some of those really long toast barrels or specially toasted barrels, um, that's kind of taken off. And it's not because they're really better. They're just different, you know. And especially as people are starting to do some more like finishing projects and, you know, there's a a real demand for how can we make a barrel that's kind of really unique. Um, 
that might be an extra long toast or extra hot toast or a special hand toast or sometimes toasted with a different species of wood, not just oak. You know, maybe you want a hickory toasted barrel, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So those unique toast, toasted offerings have gone pretty wild. And it's a lot of fun because, I mean, you know, I like food and I like different types. I like whiskeys. I like wines. I like to experiment. And so that's all very much in that same vein. So it's it's a lot different than 40 years, you know, 50 years ago, people just send a barrel down the line. So speaking of those cool experiments, in, in all these brands out there today are finished in brandy barrels or cognac barrel, or that is brandy, uh, <laughs> or different wine barrels, or they have special toasts, or they're double oaked, or whatever. And you're helping all those. Do you ever get like uh, one of your um, customers calling you up and saying, they're copying us, or or they're, uh, you, you have to walk a fine line there when you're doing... Uh, Helping, yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, I mean, I we 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 have what you call silos, <laughs> and, we, <laughs> and we keep information for customers in those silos, and we don't share with other people, and we'll sign NDAs, you know, non-disclosure agreements, you know, not just saying we will, but you know, putting on writing that we will protect this, you know, these experiments. Oh, th- and this I can vouch for that because I've tried to get information from him before on various things. Like oh, I can't kiss it. Yeah, so, no, yeah. we 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 know that um, <laughs> we, we don't ever bite the hand that feeds you, and so yeah. these customers have been so good to us. You know, we protect all that. You're just in our library, and there's you saw the bins. You can't even see through. Yeah, the, there's there. translucent panels. Yeah, translucent yeah. panels protecting. And I noticed them. there was a, a um, electric shock. Uh, that's wire right. There. And to there's touch cameras, it. barbed yeah. wire that's <laughs> around it. Cameras, barbed wire, shocking. Yeah, we know we we protect all that. You know, almost with our life because you know barrels are not our life, but they're important to us. Very important. Yeah. So we had talked about experiments. Uh, with experiments, there are sometimes failures. So has there ever been a failure that a whiskey was aged in something you're like, I, I don't think I don't think this one should go out to market. Like, oh yeah, we've had some disasters. Yeah, we bought a bunch of like chestnut oak about 30 years ago and did made a bunch of barrels and that didn't work so good. After a couple of years, those barrels looked like you know. We'll talk about it. What? what, what how well, did, they how were go, they were sweating. They, they sweated most of the whiskey out of them. So no matter how they tasted it, yeah, it didn't work so well. So you know, we tried different species we thought would have different flavor attributes that people would like. And then, you know, the thing that's strange about barrels is um, problem, problems with barrels will kind of rear their ugly head later in the process. You know, so you can do some trials like right off the bat and try to get some direction. They look like they're liquid tied or you think they're going to taste a certain way. Then two, three, four years later, things change mm-hmm. drastically. You know, whether the whiskey soaked farther into the, the wood and then found veins that were open or whether just more too much tannin came out of the wood and just destroyed the character or whether, you know, um, after, you know, certain elements of the wood were, you know, neutralized with the oxidation. I mean, things change. So, yeah, we've had a lot of experiments that we thought were great, and some things even gone commercial. We thought they were great. And, like, two years later, like, uh, not so great. What a disaster. Mm-hmm. Wasted, you know, thousands of hours of times. But, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So, how yeah. can you How can you control some of those variables? Like, is there is there a scientific process where you've kind of nailed down and say, like, we know that we can't go this route because of X, Y, or Z? Yeah, no, we, we definitely have a better... Understanding what the outcomes will be today um, based on past experiences. I mean, you know, basically we'd have like an experimental grid that we've created about what works and what doesn't work with wood species or toasting or charring. And that grid we've created over the past, you know, really say 30 years of hardcore experimentation um, is very helpful when it comes to um, avoiding pitfalls. 
So it's like a minesweeper grid. You, you click <laughs> it's kind of like that. You click on it. You're like, oh, we didn't. Yeah, don't the bomb. go there. Don't go. We, don't we hit go the there. Bomb yet. We're at the threes. We're looking good right yeah, here. Yeah, don't go. Don't don't try these two variables together because that does not work. Mm-hmm. There was a um, uh, Buffalo Trace did an experiment a few years ago that I thought was like, you know, they they do that that series for for interest, but they did one where they charred the wood for like four minutes and they said like the the barrel was still barely holding together and they aged the whiskey in it like and i've always wondered like what's the longest is that the longest you can char barrels four minutes four and a half minutes yeah when you start going like over three minutes four minutes i mean the barrel actually becomes like when you put the hoops on it it looks like an hourglass mm-hmm. oh wow it's like yeah it's like you know um plastic deformation right it keeps that shape and it'll be the hoops will actually be indent and the barrel will look like that where the hoops are. So, yeah, I mean, anything over about four minutes, Fred, you're going to start um, having a horrible time keeping the whiskey in the barrel. It's keeping the whiskey in the barrel. How many times can you actually use a barrel until it's no good anymore? Is it the you guys have researched that part? Yeah, I mean, you know, barrels are used, you know, for 60, 70. You know, go to southern Spain, there's barrels that are 100 years old, you know, sherry barrels. So, I mean, I, I was in Australia, actually, and had some... um um. Some port, I think, yeah, yeah, it's port because we had our 100th anniversary in, nine, nine, uh, in 2012 was our 100th anniversary, and I got a gift of some um, port that was 100 years old, just just taken out of the barrel. Mm-hmm. How was it? Impossible to drink. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it was nice to collect, <laughs> but it was so tannic and th- and so thick. You know, you yeah. kind of you can pour like syrup out of the bottle, kind of. Mm-hmm. But well, um, port is a dessert drink. So. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. But but it's like this je- was almost like Jello at this. Yeah, point. there there wasn't much sweetness if, left in if this. You have, if you ever needed any evidence that Brad was a whiskey guy, you just got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he basically he just said yeah, the hundred year old port wasn't that good, uh-huh. and most people would be like, "Oh my god, it was this, it was that." Yeah, no. uh, he's a whiskey man. Well, it's good. We need more whiskey people out there. Absolutely. That's what keeps us driving. Amen. Yeah. So, Brad, I think that's going to kind of wrap it up. Unless you had any more kind of follow up questions, but. You know, I gotta say, I, I, I I'm really excited about where things are headed mm-hmm. in, in American whiskey, and we're all everybody at this table here is connected to whiskey in some way. We always talk about the boom ending, and you are very close to it. Do you see, in, in your opinion, where are we with the growth of American whiskey? Well, I think that the consumption is going to continue to grow. I think that people are interested in the authenticity of bourbon. I think that, you know, globally, that's where the real opportunity is. I mean, if we're wrong globally, if the people outside the United States do not do not embrace bourbon, then there's going to be too much bourbon around pretty soon. But we do think that people, youth today, young people, legal drinking age, young people, like the flavor profile of bourbon. It's a little sweeter, you know, it's, it's a little more flavorsome than, say, some of the other types of whiskeys out there. And I think that's not just in America. I think that's around the world. Right. So I think those people will embrace it and will enjoy the cocktail culture and how mixable bourbon is and just bourbon neat, you know, the characters it gives. So I think that it will take off internationally. But if it doesn't, Fred, then we're going to have, I think as Chuck one time said, we're going to have an ocean of, you know, we can have an ocean yeah. of bourbon. I mean, mm-hmm. but... But the, but there's still the baseline today is so much better than it was you know ten years ago. That I'm I'm really thankful for that. Anyway, I mean, yeah, and you know, you're one of the biggest reasons behind it. Huge. I, I think it's Huge. it's it's very awesome to be able to do this and, and capture 
that information and kind of capture as well as your family's history and legacy to be able to bring it to the, the thousands of people that want to listen to this and kind of understand that what you're doing is actually playing the biggest part of, of what they're drinking every single day. Yeah, I mean, 50 to 75% of the flavor right there. There's not a distiller who will dispute that. The one uh, maker's mark will say, Greg Davis is, uh, used to say that you know the barrel makes about 50% of it. So the, the estimates are between 50 and 75% is what the flavor of, of bourbon is, is from the barrel. Mm-hmm. So, so we're just lucky to be part of We're lucky to be part of the boom, you know. So we're really, really, really fortunate that for me, it was a once in a probably um, probably once in a generation op- once in a generation opportunity to be part of this boom. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty fortunate. Well, really we can lucky. only wish you just more success from here, right? Oh, thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. So if people want to know more about Independence Dave, I'm assuming go to the website. Absolutely. Yeah, www.independencedavecompany, all spelled out. Mm-hmm. dot com. So. And they can find tourism, like where to, how to book. That's right. Tour. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. We um, come visit the Kentucky Cooperage and see how barrels are made. It's a real authentic experience. You literally walk into the Cooperage and you might walk out a little dust on you and a little smoke, and you know, you'll see how barrels are made firsthand. Awesome. Very, very raw experience then. Absolutely. Yeah. By design. Yeah. <laughs> really awesome. So again, thank you again for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you. And make sure you go. Try to get out to Lebanon and actually see the see the Cooperage. It's, yeah, it's a pretty cool town too, and um, you know it's one of the it's one of our state's uh, few uh, federal cemeteries too. So if you like mm-hmm. if you like looking at you know that sort of thing, there's a lot of American heroes buried here. So there you it's go. It's a great town to visit. Now you got two reasons to come. Yeah. So absolutely, make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit as well as Fred Minnick on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you subscribe to Bourbon Plus. The world's best bourbon magazine that's out there. So, oh, I know. I try to I try to keep putting you on a pedestal over here, Fred. <laughs> and if you do like the show, you want to hear more great guests like this, uh, support us, patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. And if you want any more show suggestions, ideas, fan mail, hate mail, whatever it is, send it to us, team at bourbonpursuit.com. With that, gentlemen, thanks again for joining the show and we'll see everybody next week. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.